Well, if you have a Bible and you'd like to follow along with me, you can do so by turning to Philippians chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 9 uh, this morning. You can also find it on page 982 in your pew Bible. It's also printed for you in your bulletin. So there's lots of ways that you can look at it. And so I'd invite you to do that. I do want to welcome you to Redeemer this morning. It's great to have you with us. My name's Sean Slade. I'm the pastor here, and we are so glad to have you with us because we know that there are a million different things that you could be doing this morning. For instance, you could be down at the convention center for the Brick Universe Lego Expo. Uh, You could be down at World's Fair Park for the India Festival, or you could be down on the river visiting the replicas of the Nina and the Pinta, uh, which are parked of course, in front of Calhoun's, where of course Columbus would have come. If he was coming up the river, you would stop right there at uh, Calhoun's, just like all our visitors to our great city of Knoxville. Uh, But you're not. Uh, You're here, and we're really glad you're here. We want to thank you uh, for coming. Welcome to Redeemer. What is Redeemer? Well, Redeemer is a church, and what that means is that we're a community of people who are trying to learn how to love God, and we're trying to learn how to love our neighbor. And fundamentally, what we believe is that Jesus is God. He's the Messiah. He's entered into the world to die for our sins and to reveal the love of the Father. And so every week as his people, we gather together in his name to worship him so that we might learn to rest in the love that God has for us in Christ. And as we rest in him, we then become a people who delight to gather together in community. And so we hang out with one another. We like go look at the Nina and the Penta together. We, we read the Bible together. We pray together so that we can remind each other of the great love that God has for us in Christ. And so as we rest in that love and as we remind each other of his love, we then become a people who delight to gather together in service so that together we might reflect the love of God to our family, to our friends, and to our neighbors who are here in urban and universal. Knoxville, and hopefully in some way, it will spill out to the entire world. That's who we are, people trying to learn how to love God. We're trying to learn how to love our neighbor as we rest, as we remind, and as we reflect. And so to help us do that this fall here at the end of Ordinary Time, we are thinking about the fruit of the Spirit. And the reason that I want us to think about the fruit of the Spirit is because oftentimes here at Redeemer, when we talk about reflecting the love of God, we think about activity. We think about all the things that we have to go out now and do. And we think about all of our doing, but we also have to ask the question, who are we becoming? Who is God shaping us to be? If God is really by his Spirit working his life into us, we have to ask the question, are we growing more and more and more in his image? Are we becoming a people who are filled up with more love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control? Because it's not just about what we're doing. It's not just about being busy. It's not just about being active. It is also who are we becoming by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so with that in mind this morning, as we think about the fruit of the Spirit, I want us to consider the fruit of joy. All right, the fruit of joy. So with that in mind, let's look together at Philippians chapter four. We're gonna be looking at verses one through nine. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved, I entreat Eudia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. 
Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me now for the teaching of it? Heavenly Father, we rejoice that you are a God who loves to make himself known and you've done that in your word by your spirit and ultimately you've done it in the person and work of Jesus. And so now over these next few moments as we attend unto your word, we pray that you would fill us with your joy, with the joy of making yourself known. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. Well, in March of 2018, something that uh, had never happened before happened. The number one seed, the University of Virginia, uh, lost to the number 16 seed, the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, in this thing that we call March Madness, which is a basketball tournament, if you've never heard of it. And they didn't just lose. Uh, UVA was actually blown out. They lost 74 to 54. And just about every college basketball fan dubbed this the most embarrassing loss in basketball history. And everybody's talking about how embarrassing it is. Everyone's talking about how shameful it was for UVA to lose that game. And yet as the buzzer ended and they stuck a microphone in Tony Bennett, who was the coach at UVA, they stuck a microphone in his face. He began to speak of this loss, not so much in terms of embarrassment, but he began to talk about the game of basketball. And he began to say, you know what? We're just fortunate to be able to play the game. Anything, that, anything can happen when you step out on the court. And that's why we play the game. And tonight, something happened that we didn't expect, but that's why you play the game. And then he did something really fascinating. He quoted Psalm 30, verse five. And he said, weeping may endure for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Weeping may endure for the night, but joy comes in the morning. And then that psalm actually became the motto for the 2019 University of Virginia basketball team that went on to win the national championship. And as the confetti fell from the rafters and as the nets were cut down and as the trophy was lifted up, the team stayed on that message and they kept saying, weeping may endure for the night, but joy comes in the morning. And that loss and that victory surely will go down, right, in sports history, in sports folklore. And surely ESPN is going to make a 30 for 30 about that basketball team, uh, and it will be incredible. Weeping may endure for the night. Joy comes in the morning, 7 p.m. on Saturday. Uh, and, and as we hear this, right, we think that this is this amazing sports story, and we long for it to be true in our own lives, Right, that weeping may endure for the night, but joy would come in the morning. And yet often, when we think about our own lives, it seems to be that weeping endures through the night and it continues into the morning. And then we read a passage like Philippians chapter four, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. And you're like, I'm being commanded to rejoice. And just because someone commands you to rejoice, it does not make it so. 
And yet the testimony of the Bible from the beginning to the end is that God is a joyful God who created out of the overflow of his love, who created out of great joy and placed his people into the garden that they would enjoy him, that they would know him. And the testimony of the Bible is that God longs for his people to know his joy. He wants us to be a people who rejoice. He wants the ecosystem of our lives to be that of rejoicing. And so this morning, what I want us to do is I want us to think about joy. I want us to think about the fruit of the spirit that we call joy, all right? Now, some of you, you were born in such a way that you're tiggers, right? You're just bouncy, bouncy, happy, happy all the time, right? And then there are others of you that were just born as Eeyores and everything's just sort of an aw shucks and everything's just sort of, uh, you know, a hassle for you. But we're not talking about our natural dispositions, Those are our natural dispositions. What we are talking about in the Bible is the fruit of the Holy Spirit. We are talking about the gift of joy that God gives us. We are talking about the disposition of Jesus, which the Holy Spirit is working into our lives. And therefore, the disposition of joy is a disposition that we must pray for, and it is a disposition that we must seek to cultivate. Now, there are times in our life when joy just sort of surprises us, where it just comes upon us, right? Like when your favorite team scores a touchdown or when you walk down the street and you see an old friend, right? You're overwhelmed by joy. Or maybe you go to a restaurant and you eat banana pudding and your eyes open up and you're like, this is the best thing I've ever had. You're just filled with his joy. And, but for the most part, joy is something that we must learn, Joy is something that you have to learn. You see this in verse nine. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. As God's people, we must learn joy. We must practice joy. But for many of us, that's really hard because many of us have closed ourselves off to the possibility of joy because we are really afraid that God doesn't want us to be joyful. We're afraid that God doesn't really care about joy. We're afraid that God won't give it. And we're afraid that little bit of joy that we have tasted will eventually disappear and go away. And so we find ourselves like Katniss Everdeen at the end of Hunger Game, at the end of Mockingjay, when she's reflecting on her life and she says this, on bad mornings, it feels impossible to take pleasure in anything because I'm afraid it could be taken away. I find it impossible to take pleasure in anything because I'm afraid that it could be taken away. And that's how many of us seem to go through life. We are afraid to rejoice. We're afraid to enjoy because we are afraid that it might disappear. And here's the deal. A lack of joy or the absence of joy in the people of God is a problem. It is not God's intention for us to be joyless. The absence of joy in our lives is a problem. Now, this doesn't mean that as Christians, we need to sort of slap on or paste a smile on our face and ignore the pain of the world and be Flanders and happy, happy all the time. Uh, In fact, as Christians, of all people in the world as Christians, we ought to be able to be honest about the suffering and honest about the sadness. As as Christians, we ought to be a people who are able and willing to weep. But we ought to be a people who can weep with a real deep sense of joy. 
If you've read the Beatitudes recently, you might remember that Jesus makes this comment. He says, blessed are you who weep now, for you will rejoice. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. And then he goes on and he pronounces these woes. And he says, woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. And I think that this is amazingly encouraging because what Jesus is saying is he's saying that weeping and mourning and suffering, they're real, but they will not win. And he is saying as his people, we cannot ignore suffering and pretend as if it does not exist because to do so would be to be evil. And this is one of the things that I love about Christianity. It's honest and it's complex and it is true to life. There is real suffering and sadness in the world and yet at the same time, there really is this thing called joy. And if you think about the book of Philippians, you've gotta remember that Paul is writing this letter from prison. And from prison, he says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. And as he writes this to them, he's writing to this church that's being sort of torn apart. They're in the midst of this conflict because these two women are fighting with one another. And so he writes in verse two, I entreat Eudia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I also ask you, true companion, help these women. And what I love about this letter is that Paul isn't ignoring the issues. He's not ignoring the pain. He's not putting on the fake smile and pretending like everything is fine. Instead, what he does is he names it. He names the conflict. He names the suffering. He names the struggles. And then he invites his people to enter into it. He invites them to enter into the weeping, to enter into the conflict so that their joy might be made complete. And why would he encourage that? He encourages that because that is the pattern of Jesus. If you remember in the book of Hebrews in chapter 12, verse two, it says, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. For the joy that was set before him He endured the cross and despised its shame. For the joy that was set before Jesus, he looked deep into our suffering. He looked deep into our sin and he didn't pretend like it was fine. He didn't pretend like it was okay. He didn't turn a blind eye to it and just sort of pat us on the back and say, there, there, it will be okay. But he entered into it and he bore our suffering. He bore our sin. He went to the cross and died for it. And why would he do that? The Bible tells us that he did that for the joy that was set before him. And what was his joy? His joy was you. His joy is that you would know him. His joy is that you would know his love. His joy is that you would be reconciled to him, restored to him, conformed more and more to his image. His joy is you. But it's not only you, his joy is also the Father. 
His joy was found in knowing the love of his heavenly father. His joy was found in pleasing the heavenly father in being with the heavenly father in returning to the heavenly father and dwelling with the heavenly father in glory forever. And then his joy was to take that joy that he had in you and that joy that he had in the father and place it before our eyes so that that joy would be set before us. And it would lead us through our suffering and through our sadness and into eternal life with them. You see, joy is not so much rooted in this world as it is rooted in God. And God's desire for his people is that we would joyfully respond to him that we would joyfully live with him, that we would joyfully serve him. As I was studying uh, this week, uh, I came across a fascinating passage in the book of Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy chapter 28, you might remember this book is, was a, a book written to the people of God as they're about to enter into the promised land. And as they're about to enter into the promised land, God gives them, uh, he, he speaks of these blessings and these curses. And he says, if you live this way, this is how it's gonna be great. If you do these things, not so good. And as he's beginning to lay out these curses for them, he tells them in Deuteronomy 28, verse 47, that these curses will come upon you that the exile will come to you because you did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness. It's not only that you did not serve me. He's saying you did not serve me with joyfulness and gladness. I mean, that's amazing. God's desire is that we would serve him joyfully, that to serve him would be our delight. I would assume that all of you know, so you've all kind of experienced someone who serves in such a way that they do all the right things, but there's no joy in it. You've probably asked your children to go clean their rooms before, and there's some door slamming, and there's some punching of the walls, there's some stomping around, there's a lot of noise, there's a lot of yelling, and the rooms might be cleaned, but they are cleaned maybe with the middle finger uh, raised high uh, and letting you know that they're not happy about it. Uh, I've done that uh, multiple times in my family. Uh, or maybe you've dated someone in the past and they did all the right things. They did the relationship right. They would call you at the right times. They would text you at the right times. They would write the right notes. They would say the right things. They would take you on the right dates. They'd wear the right uh, outfits. And yet there was no joy in it. They did the whole thing to be right in the relationship, but there was no joy in one another. And when there is only rightness and there is no joy, there is no life. And I'm of the persuasion that that's how many of us serve God. We attempt to do all the right things, but we're miserable. 
That's what the book of Galatians was all about. The Galatians had come to this place in their life where they felt like they had to get really serious and they had to get it all right. And if they could just get it all right, then they would be right and they would be okay and everything would be right. And so they started thinking all the time, am I enough? Have I done enough? Do I eat the right foods? Do I wear the right clothes? Do I avoid the right things? Do I love my neighbor enough? Do I pray enough? Do I read the Bible enough? Do I know enough? And then they began to judge themselves over and over. Do I know enough? Am I enough? Am I enough? And because that destroyed their own sense of self, they then turned that judgment on one another. Are they enough? Do they know enough? Why don't they do more? And as Teddy Roosevelt famously once said, right, the comparison or that comparison is the thief of joy. And when our lives are spent always comparing ourselves, it will steal our joy. I mean, when we spend our lives thinking, They have more than me, they do more than me, they know more than me, they seem happier than me. That rarely evokes any joy in our lives. But the opposite isn't true either. When we sit around and think, well, I have more than them, I'm smarter than them, I do better than them, I read my Bible and pray more than them, I'm better than them. That doesn't fill our hearts with joy, nor does it spread joy to others. Instead, it just fills our own lives with bitterness and it spreads misery to all we come in contact with. This summer, I learned about a cool animal, a miserable animal actually, called the jewel wasp. And the jewel wasp is this awful, nasty little creature that, will, that loves to sneak up on its prey, and when it sneaks up on its prey, it will sting it. And when it stings its prey, it doesn't kill it. Instead, what it does is it paralyzes it. And once that its prey, you know, has sufficiently become paralyzed, it's no longer moving or whatever, the wasp will then drag its prey into its lair. And when it puts its, maybe it's a cockroach, maybe it's ant, it puts it in its lair. And then what it does is it lays, I don't know why, it lays its eggs. Uh, you know, the wasp lays its eggs all over, you know, the cockroach. It just sort of lathers it and smothers it in all this larva. And then as the larva like begins to grow and begins to live more and more, it begins to eat the paralyzed victim that's still alive. And as it begins to consume it, right, once the victim has been consumed, the larvae become fully adult. And then what they do is they fly out of the lair and they go do it again to somebody else. That's what joyless service is like, right? (laughs) It paralyzes all we come in contact with. It paralyzes them in our bitterness. It smothers them and it consumes them. And then it just replicates the misery all over again. But God is actually inviting us to serve joyfully. He's inviting us to serve not in a way that's trying to think, am I better than them? He's inviting us to serve in a way that doesn't say, am I making myself good enough? He's inviting us to serve not in a way that thinks, oh, you know what? Like I'm actually better than God and now God owes me. He's actually inviting us to serve out of love for him because of the way he has loved us. And because of the way that he has showered his blessings and his kindness and his goodness upon us. And so we serve out of great joy for who he is. And so how is it then that we might begin to cultivate joy within us? Well, we must set our minds upon Jesus. 
You see this in verse eight. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And as Paul is saying this here in verse eight, he's contrasting it with chapter three, verse 19, when he had written this, their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. And I think that this verse is a fairly strong challenge to many of us. It's especially a strong challenge to me because I spend so much of my life thinking about the brokenness and the sadness and the disappointments. I love to watch movies that are filled with brokenness and sadness and disappointments. And then I say, well, those are just true. And I fill myself up with that. And then I wonder why I'm depressed And why I'm sad, and yet rarely do I stop and I pause and I dream about the resurrection. And I meditate upon the love of Jesus and the kindness that he has. And if we spend all of our lives reading and watching and thinking about the brokenness and thinking about all the things that we have not been given, that will shape you in your bitterness and in your sadness. Think about it this way. Uh, some of you I know watch it, H, work at HGTV. It's not, a, it's not a critique of HGTV. But if all you watch is HGTV and fixer-uppers and house hunters, right, and you just want to look at the twins as they make new homes, right, you will long for a new house. And you will despise the house you've been given and you will be disappointed in your kitchen and you'll be disappointed in your bathrooms and you'll become angry and you'll think, why hasn't God given me a house like that? Why is he withholding all these good things from me? And yet if the resurrection and Jesus begin to fill your mind and your heart, what you can think is this, man, my house has issues. My house is a mess and it really would be nice for us to move and it really would be nice to have those like, I don't know, like uh, onyx blue granite countertops with like painted cabinets and like new hardware and maybe a new shower. It'd be great. But even if I can't, the Lord has prepared a place for me. And that place that he has prepared is with him. And it will never wear out. And it will never fade away. The Lord has been good to me. And he loves me. Others of you, I would assume, spend a lot of time reading romance novels or watching Netflix romances like... I don't know, like Tall Girl or whatever it is, like the new Netflix special. As you think about like, and you're just thinking like, what would it look, be like, I gotta be in a relationship. I gotta get married. Everything's gotta be happily ever after. And you live for that fairy tale. And when you begin to get into the relationship and everything goes great and you're like living the dream and you're you know, putting on your princess tiara and all that sort of stuff, like living into it, right? And then they break up with you. That's sad, Like it's really sad, it's really painful. And yet at the same time, if the story of Jesus and the story of his resurrection are filling your mind, you're able to say, Father, I am so sad 
Father, I am hurting, and yet the reality is this, I have your love. And in you, I have everything I need, and you will never abandon me, and I will be okay because I am loved by you. See, we cultivate joy as we focus on our Savior. We also cultivate joy as we remember grace. And what I mean by that is everything that we have is a gift from God. Everything that you have is a gift from God. And yet somehow our hearts work in such a way that we think that we have earned everything that we have and we deserve more. We think God owes us. And it is hard to be joyful and it is hard to be thankful when we believe deep down that we are owed something. And of course we get angry and of course we get mad because we think, why hasn't God given that gift to me? Why hasn't God given me that job? Why hasn't he given me that opportunity? Why don't I have the money they have? Why don't I get to drive that sweet car that they get to drive? And the list could go on and on and on. But what do you have? Can you not remember? Can you not see what he has given to you? And everything that you have is a gift. Your money, your friends, your family, your work, your skills, the food, your drink, everything you have. Those are gifts from God. And not only that, what you don't have might actually be a gift as well. Because God does not desire to give us things that will take us away from him. He doesn't want to give you things that will steal your heart. But here's the deal. Gifts are received. They're not earned. They're not owed to you. And we will lose our joy when we begin to think that we have earned what we have or not been given what we are owed. It might be important to pause here for a second because I'm afraid that some of you might go home today and you might start to beat yourself up and you think, I don't have enough joy. What's wrong with me? I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. I don't love enough. And now I'm not happy enough. I stink. I'm worthless. That's not the point of all this. The point of this is to invite you to not look at that stuff. To all those things that are stealing your joy. The point is that we would look to Jesus. The one who actually delights to give good gifts that we would look to Jesus, the one who actually seeks our joy, that we would look to Jesus and remember his kindness and his love and the joy that he has over us, that you would look to Jesus and long for his resurrection, long for the day when he will return and he will fill this world with the joy of his presence. The point is that you would look to him and allow him to fill you with himself. And I think it's that, I think that our joy actually gets cultivated more and more, actually, as we participate in God's work. I want you to look at verse one. I think it's fascinating. Paul says, therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown. What's amazing here is that Paul is saying the Philippians are his joy. 
And what is it that he finds joyful in them? He finds joyful in them that those that he had told about Jesus are continuing to grow in Jesus. That those that he had told of Jesus are now growing in their love for God. They're growing in their love for their neighbor. And so Paul rejoices. And it seems to me there ought to be a part of our lives of which this is true, that you and I should be the crown and joy of one another that we would find our joy in one another. Last week, we were making some videos, you might remember, and we invited some of you to, to do some interviews. And so over the weekend last week, Josh McQuaid and I spent hours up here at the church, Josh more hours than me, interviewing you. And as you sat here and you told us about Jesus, and you talked about how God is at work in this place and how God is at work in you, and you talked about the ways you've learned Jesus as you've been here. And, and Josh and I are almost in tears as we hear these things because we think our work isn't in vain. And one of the joys of my life really is to be your pastor. One of the joys is actually pastor here and to participate with you in the work that Jesus is doing on this corner. That Jesus is making himself known. That he is working in your life and in the life of your friends. And you should find joy in your community groups and in your Bible studies and in your Sunday schools as you work with the children, as you work with the youth, as you hear one another's stories and as you hear how God is at work among you and as you see Jesus changing each and every one of us over time as we see our love for him and his love growing. And that's exciting, it produces joy. And it seems to me that one of the things that seems to be true about us as Christians is that as you participate in the work of Jesus, you will be filled more and more with sadness and sorrow. And you will be filled with more and more joy. They are both true at the same time. And you can come to Redeemer and you can find a lot of joy in just coming and listening and singing. But your joy will not be complete until you share your life and the work of God with others. And this is why one of my favorite quotes is on the front of this bulletin by Mark Twain. To get the full value of joy, you must have someone to divide it with. Joy has got to be shared and this is why TikTok videos are funnier with other people. This is why YouTube is funnier with your friends. This is why a good meal is better shared than alone. And the same is true with God. And as we share him with others, he begins to cultivate our joy. And I think that this is important because if our church stops reaching out to others, if we stop reaching out to our neighbors, and if we become content with ourselves, we will rob ourselves of the joy that God desires for us. We will rob ourselves of the joy of seeing his mission in this world. I love the session here at Redeemer it is a joy to serve alongside them. And one of the things that I have loved about this year in our prayer times together is that uh, we have been praying all year that we would have the privilege of seeing four adult baptisms. Just four. I know to many of you it doesn't sound like much, but what a, what a privilege 
What a joy that would be to see neighbors who had never known Jesus come into this building and come to know him, to come to know the joy that we have in him. We see tons of children baptisms and they're beautiful and they bring joy. We have had the privilege of seeing some of you come to the Lord's table for the first time and that brings great joy. But we long for our neighbors, we long for our friends to come to know him for the first time and to be baptized into the joy of fellowship with him. And so our prayer is that we as a people would walk more and more in such a way that we would rejoice so that others might come to know his joy with us. And finally, the last thing I wanna say is this, that joy will come in the morning. And I think that this is really important to remind you of because uh, I know that some of you uh, really struggle to have joy. You struggle for a variety of reasons. Uh, Some of you have chemical struggles. Some of you have broken hearts. Some of you have broken bodies. Some of you have deep disappointments. And for some of you, the burdens of your life have become the darkness of the night. There are others of you that are here and you have this amazing gift and it is a gift from God and it's the gift of empathy. You feel the pain that other people feel. You see the corruption and the pain that so easily entangles us and that's a beautiful gift. But if you have that gift, you know that at times it is hard to rejoice. And what I wanna say to you is this, joy is yours. And joy is yours because Jesus is yours. And he is telling us in verse six, the Lord is at hand. And what that means is that you are not alone in what you see. You are not alone in what you feel. You are not alone in your tears or your sadness, but he is with you and he sees it too. And though you may not know it now, though you may not fully experience joy in the way that Jesus longs for us to know joy, he is promising us that he will return. And when he does, all that steals your joy will be removed. All the darkness, all the illness, all the brokenness, all the weakness, it will be transformed by the joy of his presence. And the darkness of our morning will be cast out by the glory and the brightness of his joy. And we will fully and finally experience it in him. See, weeping may endure for the night, but joy will come on the morning of his return. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful that you are good. And we pray that you would fill us with yourself. We pray that you would lift our eyes to you, that we might be a people who walk in great joy. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.